Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone. This solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Yep, you're right. That's not the usual way that we start this broadcast, but it is an important way to start it today because we're going to talk about that precious hymn. In Christ Alone was published as Keith and Kristen Getty's first hymn all the way back in 2001. And just to tell you what's happened from then till now, that song has become the cornerstone of the catalog of hymns that's used by over one hundred million people, think about that number, annually around the globe, that according to Integrity Music. And by the way, In Christ Alone has been the longest running number one song in the UK and currently longest running top 25 songs in the US. The British Hymn Society lists the song in its top five hymns of all time. It's been selected for ceremonial occasions like the enthronement of the Archbishop of Canterbury and has been recorded and sung in every major modern language. Now, why did we open the show with this and why are we talking about it now? Because what you just heard is a recording that was done at the Sydney Opera House in Australia 
with the worship group City Alight. Here to tell you more about this is Keith Getty himself, Northern Irish hymn writer and Grammy-nominated recording artist. He is also, by the way, the man who became the first contemporary church musician of the modern era to receive the OBE from Queen Elizabeth II for his services to music. Keith, congratulations on a hymn that has literally changed the way in which we worship. In fact, it has been said that in Christ alone just might become the amazing grace of our age. Congratulations on this. Well, th- thank you very much, John. It's great to be in the show. It's very, very flattering to hear all that. I, I guess encouraging. I, I, I think I can, I think I can say with genuine humility. You know, it was the first time I wrote. I wrote it, I wrote it with Stuart Townend, and uh, I've never been able to repeat it. So it really was an act of God. Sometimes when people are saying something humble, like I didn't deserve to win the race, you go, Yeah, but you ran faster than everybody else, so you did deserve to win the race. In my case, I can say, I can say. This was an act of God. It really wasn't me because I've never been able to repeat it. So, <laughs> wow, so, just amazing. So we're, we're, now, we're thankful. Well, you're coming up to the 25th anniversary of the song. And when you did this at the Sydney Opera House, the plans are now for this to be released again in multiple major languages. In fact, there's already been a recording, as I understand it, Solo en Jesus, uh, that's going to be released March of this year. Talk to me about this. Yeah, no, it's, that was that was the closing, that was the closing hymn of our world tour. As you know, you, you, we were interviewing your program. We did we played a lot of places, lots of places in America. Mm-hmm. We played in, in 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 Europe. We played in Asia, and then we finished in Australia. And the closing night of the world tour was Sydney Opera House. And uh, so to do that with City Alight, who are such a wonderful, fresh voice in in the world today, is was just a privilege. And uh, and so we released we released that on Friday. And it really, we're, in the next 36 months, we're heading into the 25th anniversary of the song. And what we're really trying to waken up to, the world tour really was to launch this off, was that what we didn't know was that in the modern wild west of the internet, when somebody puts something up on, online and does 10,000 streams of their language interpretation of in Christ alone, that becomes the official language. The problem is most of these interpretations aren't that very good. They don't sing well. The, the words don't sing nicely. The poetry isn't great. But more concerning than that, theologically they're not accurate. Over half of them don't even mention substitutionary atonement. Mm. So what we're doing over the next three years, starting with the world tour, the world tour finale is really a fresh version with a younger group like City of Light. But it also is really heralding this season where we are ensuring the song is being recorded in our in our correct translations in different in different cultures. And so this is they say this this kicks it off, and then in March. We begin with the Spanish one, uh, and we're, we're going to be doing the seven major global languages over the next two years so that people can get it in those languages. Amen. Well, speaking of language, you know, I was so much looking forward to our time together today. My husband and I have been digging through the Book of Romans, which is hefty theologically, and it talks wow. about God's wrath. So I have to ask you, because I remember that there was one denomination that was put off by one of the choruses of the song where it talks about the wrath of God being poured on his son. I mean, the whole hymn is about salvation. And that's why, for me personally, yeah. in full transparency, I can't sing the song without having to stop. In fact, talking about it now, I'm getting emotional because it's it's such an encapsulation of what Christ did for us and the power of the victory that we gained because of his obedience at the cross. And so in Romans, it talks about God's wrath. In the song, it talks about him pouring out his wrath, which was then justified, was taken care of through the completed work of Calvary. When that pushback came, that sort of guts the gospel message. What did you think when that controversy came up? 
it wasn't. A, we didn't think it was a controversy. People asked permission to change the words of the song, and we said no. And they immediately said, well, if you don't give us the permission, we might drop the song from the hymn book. And we went, fine, that's fair enough. But we just don't want you doing it incorrectly. And so they dropped it from the hymn book. But I think the problem in that case, this was in 2012, this is way back now, if I remember correctly, they had already marketed the hymn book as in, including that song. And so when it didn't come out, there were questions about it. Then they said we dropped it because the Gettys were intolerant and intransigent and all this kind of thing. And so this kind of, and I, and I was in, listen, I was in vacation when the whole thing happened, so I missed the entire thing. So, so there, there became this kind of, where's the song? Then we didn't put it in. And then why didn't you put it in? Because we didn't agree with the words. Why don't you agree with the words? Oh, so you don't believe in the wrath of God. And so this, this online storm began um, among blog posts and it, and it triggered this kind of conversation. You know, and all, everybody was involved in the conversation. It even managed to make the Washington Post and the Economist, would you believe? Wow. And just as it was, just as it was coming down, the Liberals accused us of promoting divine child abuse and trying to use language, trying to use sort of language to inflate the whole thing. And uh, but so it was. But honestly, for us, it was just a chance to talk about the song, and it was a chance to talk about the gospel. So it was Amen. a really wonderful opportunity. Exactly. And Keith, I'm so glad that you took a moment to answer that question because it underscores that you're not just writing songs. What you're doing is you're teaching us how to sing what the patriarchs of our faith have taught us and what the Word of God says. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's our blessing. Thank you, Keith. I've got a link to the song on my website. Check it out. You can learn more. Happy anniversary. God, why am I here? How should I live? Could you find the answer to those crucial questions from God's Word? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Learn the essentials of our faith in a clear and succinct way. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Well, this Friday, hundreds of thousands of people will come, mostly in buses from all across the country, to march in the 51st annual March for Life. And it doesn't make any difference what the weather is. And for many of us, we are suffering from a vortex right now. And it's probably going to be miserable. But I have to tell you, whether it's a beautiful January or a brutal January, these individuals who have decided to stay the course and fight the good fight will come to my town of Washington, D.C., and in one of the most peaceful, most well-respected marches in my town, the largest human rights march in the world, by the way, will happen in Washington, D.C. And at one point, after being encouraged at a rally where multiple people will speak and my team will capture the highlights of that event and bring it all to you on Friday's edition of In the Market with Janet Parshall, the marchers will then, having been fully encouraged, march down the major street of Washington, D.C., and at the steps of the United States Supreme Court and pray that God would shed his mercy on us, despite the fact that we have 65 million plus people 
who have lost their lives. Someone who studies all the data swirling around this issue is Dr. Michael New. I'm so grateful for him and his friendship and the brilliant mind that God has given him. He is a research associate at uh, the Catholic University of America, as well as the associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. But he's also a very prolific writer, and he's had two pieces recently, one that showed up in National Review and the other in The Hill, which is connected to, obviously, Capitol Hill, that I have asked Michael to come and share with you. And I like good news stories. And because one of the phony assaults on the pro-life movement, and by the way, in case you just woke up from a long winter's dream, we are in an election year. I think uh, Monday night's activity in Iowa reminded us all about that. But abortion will be a big issue because one party in particular has decided that being pro-abortion is a politically viable uh, option for them. And it's going to be hammered again and again and again. And so, unfortunately, we will be bombarded with a plethora of lies and there will be an uptick in assaults verbally, one praise not literally, against pregnancy help centers across the country. So, Michael, the warmest of welcomes, and that's where I want to stop, because if you look at the work that pregnancy help centers have been done, have been doing for decades across this country, it really is Humanity at its best, if I can put it that way, the way in which the woman is cared for, loved, comforted, educated, whether it's a layette or getting a helper get a GED or temporary housing, the list goes on and on and on of benefits. And yet Planned Parenthood has notched it up a whole lot more, calling pregnancy help centers across this country phony centers, by the way, who hand out false information. Nothing could be farther from the truth. So tell me about what you wrote about in The Hill and why we should celebrate the work of these pregnancy help centers. Sure, that uh, every few years or so, the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the pro-life think tank that I'm associated with, does a big survey on the overall impact of pro-life pregnancy help centers. Right now, there's over 2,700 uh, such centers that provide a very impressive range of goods and services to women, families, and youth in need. And uh, we did a survey and just kind of tallied up all the good work they've done. And we found that uh, in 2022, they saw over 974,000 new clients, and they provided over $358 million worth of goods and services. Mm. This includes things like diapers, baby formula, car seats, um, clothing. also includes you know parenting classes, uh, sex education classes that involve abstinence. So they're really reaching quite a lot of women in need and providing a lot of very valuable goods and services. And uh, we just think it's important to highlight their good work. Uh, 2022 was a challenging year. It was year of the Dobbs decision. Uh, they had more demands on their resources. Uh, they were facing increased amounts of harassment uh, from uh, People support legal abortion, uh, mm-hmm. both elected officials and cases of just you know vandalism. Uh, but they came through with flying colors. You know they reached out to more women. They provided more goods and services, and this outstanding work should be heralded. Could not agree with you more. So let me go to a quote that's on pre- uh, Planned Parenthood's website dealing with crisis pregnancy centers, and I'm quoting them directly, Michael. Be careful when looking for a reliable health center. There are fake clinics that say they have pregnancy service. These are called crisis pregnancy centers. And they're run by people who are anti-abortion and don't believe in telling you the truth 
about all of your pregnancy options. They may use lies and manipulation to try to scare or shame people out of choosing abortion. Now, that the, uh, those are fighting words, if you want to be real honest about that. So here's my question for you. Pregnancy help centers have sonograms. They have ultrasound machines because they want mama to see that this isn't a blob of tissues. They want her to know before she makes a fully informed decision what her baby looks like at the particular gestational age that she comes to visit the center. The only time and if Planned Parenthood were to use an ultrasound machine, it's to check gestational age because that's more money that they can charge depending on how advanced the pregnancy is. So why doesn't Planned Parenthood want to use ultrasounds and why are they so afraid of CPCs? Well, they're competition. You know, Planned Parenthood, you know, makes money when women obtain abortions. They have no real interest in letting women know about life-affirming alternatives. Whereas, you know, pregnancy help centers, uh, you know, typically are funded by donations. Uh, pretty much everything they offer is free, you know, whether it's clothing, whether it's material goods, whether it's services. So Planned Parenthood just really, you know, resents the competition uh, these pregnancy help centers provide. Uh, I just think it's tragic. I don't think Planned Parenthood gives information. I'm sure they don't give information about alternatives uh, to women who are unsure about abortion. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas uh, these pro-life pregnancy help centers, you know, are offering, you know, real alternatives. Uh, to women every day. You know, they do offer a very impressive range of services um, free of charge. And again, they're on the front lines, really doing their best, helping women in need. You know, I'm on the board of the uh, Northwest Center, which is one of our fine pro-life pregnancy help centers in Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, our executive director is a uh, professional social worker. You know, she really knows uh, a lot of public and private ways that women can obtain help. So they do a great job at women in need. And I think just the opposition from Planned Parenthood is they just simply don't want the competition. I couldn't agree more. You said that beautifully, Michael. I'm going to go back to your piece in The Hill because I want our friends to understand that you note that there are 2,750 pregnancy centers in all 50 states. By the way, for the record, that means there are more pregnancy help centers in the United States than there are abortion centers. So Who's winning here? And by the way, just in 2022 alone, as Michael was saying, do you realize these pregnancy centers run on prayers and the donations of people who support them in their work? They have recorded a total of more than 16 million client visits and a delivery of over $358 million worth of goods and services. And not a penny of that comes from the federal government. It's from people who support the sanctity of human life great article. When we come back, I'm going to talk about 2024 and why this is an important year when it comes to the sanctity of human life. We are visiting with Dr. Michael New, who is a research associate at the Catholic University of America, as well as an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the preeminent pro-life think tank here in Washington, D.C., So you've taken a look at 2024, and as I noted earlier when we started our conversation, Michael, this is going to be, like it or not, an election issue. And uh, one party is going to play this up dramatically, and they've seen it as, and if they look back at the midterms, they would say, look, abortion is a winning issue for us, and we're going to push for this uh, in a myriad of ways. The truth doesn't matter at all. It's uh, situational ethics. Put out all the lies you want to about the sanctity of human life, because any means whatsoever is justifiable as long as we get to our desired end. That is a nutshell definition of situational ethics. But you've seen the glass half full, and I so appreciate your perspective on this. You think that 2024 offers some unique opportunities for victories. How so? Well, 2024 is going to be an important election. We got 
34 senators up for election. We got all of Congress, and I'm sure your listeners are well aware this is a presidential election. And, uh, you know, electing a pro-life president is very important. You know, that makes a big difference in terms of judicial nominations. You know, President Trump's judicial nominations played a key role in the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And, uh, you know, executive branch appointments are important also. But what I kind of talk a lot about in my Nash review piece is that abortion is going to be on the ballot in as many as 12 states Mm. in 2024. Uh, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Maryland, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, New York, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Iowa are all possibilities. Uh, So we have our work cut out for us. But I don't think we should despair. Even though we have not done well in these direct democracy elections in the past couple of years, I think there are some opportunities for victory. First off, Florida. I think it was just announced that uh, our opponents have got enough signatures to put you know, an abortion rights proposition uh, on the ballot in that state. To win in Florida, to amend the Constitution, you need 60 percent, 6-0, not a majority, 60 percent. Now, I think we can keep our opponents under 60. Uh, in Kansas, Michigan, Ohio, uh, we lost. But we did keep our opponents under 60. So I think Florida is a chance for us to win. Also, there are going to be ballot propositions in certain states that Trump won by big margins. Uh, the ballot propositions in Missouri, South Dakota, Arkansas, Nebraska, these are all states that Trump carried by over 15 points uh, in 2020. So these are very conservative, very red states that I think are pretty favorable trade for pro-lifers. So I think we have actually a good chance to win some of these. Let me pause because you said something important, and I want to look back at 2023 and why it is important that people just carefully and prayerfully prepare, but exercise that responsibility to vote. So Florida needed needs 60% of the vote to amend the state constitution. This is exactly what the proposal was in Ohio. It was, and there was so much misinformation, so much of it as a result of outside money that got poured into that state. But it was exactly this. Rather than a simple majority, the clarion call was to obtain a 60% to amend the state constitution, not a simple majority, and yet it failed. So what Florida has in place is what Ohio was trying to do. So the point is, it wasn't bizarre in Ohio by any stretch of the imagination. Lots of states have a 60% threshold to amend their constitution. And well, they should. In the United States, at the federal level, it's difficult to amend. And our founders had the wisdom to say, you can't do this at every whim. You have to judiciously discern whether or not it's crucial enough to make the change. So I like your perspective on this, but it's all going to depend on who gets out and votes. And if people think this is a season where they have to hold their nose they're not going to show up and vote for those other issues on the ballot. All the razzmatazz, Michael, always goes to the presidential race. But how do we get friends to understand that when you step into that ballot box for whom others have given up their lives for your right to be able to do that, it isn't just the razzmatazz and the spin from the legacy media for the presidential race. It's all of these other issues on the ballot as well. Yeah, I mean, again, presidential elections get a lot of attention, you know, but we're seeing, you know, at the states, I think that's where the real action is taking place, you know, post-Dobbs. Uh, you know, at the state level, we can actually do things to protect unborn children, and we have. Uh, the other side is going to be pushing back against this. And for the first time, you know, we're going to have actually pro-life laws that are protecting pre-born children that are in jeopardy of being overturned 
by these ballot propositions. I mean, Missouri, South Dakota, Arkansas, Nebraska, these are all states with very strong pro-life laws in place. And we need people to show up and vote that, you know, thousands of human lives are at stake in these states. So, again, the presidential election is certainly important. All elections in some respects are important. Uh, but these state-level ballot propositions, uh, they're going to be very, very important moving forward. Uh, they need investment of time, you know, resources, prayer. Uh, again, we can't sit this out as, as pro-lifers. Yeah. Amen. Michael, I'm so grateful that you come and visit. What I hear often from my listeners is, where do I go to get this kind of information? So people listening, and you're talking to folks literally all across the country, and they're trying to figure out what's on their ballot for their state regarding this most important issue of life. Where does where does the average voter go to learn more? Well, if they want to hear from me, um, on Twitter, I'm at Michael underscore J underscore new. That's at Michael underscore J underscore new. Uh, voters in other states, I mean, you. every state has a strong right to life chapter. Every state has a, you know, I'm Roman Catholic. Usually the Catholic Conference in uh, many states tracks these things well. Uh, National Review Online, Life News, Life Site News, Life Action mm-hmm. News. These are great websites. People just need to, you know, reach out to Pro-Life Media and do their best to, to stay informed. Yeah, excellent. And by the way, Michael's last name is spelled just like the word new, N-E-W. And uh, I think it would be important for you to follow him on Twitter because he often, by the way, uh, literally teases these articles that he's written and creates a link so that you can go and read the article in its entirety, which is extremely important. But Michael does something important when he wrote his piece for the National Review. He basically reminded us that this is a clarion call for those of us who understand that at its core, this is a biblical issue. It may wear the robes of a legislator and it may look like a judge from time to time, but at its core, this is a biblical and a spiritual issue. God is the author of life. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed about that. But also, as Michael says, and I'm quoting him, all hands have to be on deck as thousands of innocent lives are literally at stake this election cycle. Michael, you couldn't have said it better. Always a joy to be with you. We'll take a break, friends, and be right back. We can all safely say that society seems to be decaying before our eyes. On In the Market, we're tackling the issues head-on from a biblical perspective so you'll know how to influence and occupy, as Scripture says. Become a partial partner today and support In the Market. As a benefit, you'll receive exclusive resources every week prepared just for you. Call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. You know, there are just some people you really love, and Ryan and Bethany Bomberger are two people that I just really love. Their marriage is exemplary. They are unwavering in their witness for Christ and their support of the sanctity of human life. How do I know this? Because of the work that they do. Their lives just bring forth all kinds of fruit in this area. Ryan is an Emmy Award-winning creative professional who co-founded the Radiance Foundation along with Bethany. Bethany, his wife, has been an educator for more than two decades, getting her master's degree from Regent University. And Radiance Foundation is a spectacular organization. It's faith-based, it's educational, it's life-affirming. It believes that every human life is a God-given purpose. And the Radiance Foundation, by the way, God has opened doors of great opportunity for them. They have helped to lead congressional briefings and summits on Capitol Hill dealing with abortion and adoption and racism. And they've spoken to thousands of students on campuses around the globe, from Harvard to Princeton to the University of Notre Dame. But I'll tell you something else they're doing. They've been writing a lot lately. So in 2003, 
to deal with this tip of the spear that's an assault, not just on our culture, but really is an attempt to upend the Genesis mandate and therefore is an assault on the church and specifically on the Word of God. This idea that you can wake up one morning like Nimrod and raise your fist toward heaven and basically say, you made a mistake. I'm not a man. I'm a girl, and I'm going to prove it. And so you either throw a bunch of drugs down your throat that will make your body change, or you go through irreversible mutilating surgery. And I just, it is bizarre. I believe that Jesus's return is imminent, and that's evidence to it. So There's a law in physics that applies to conversations in the culture as well. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So while all of this stuff is being pushed on our kids, whether or not your local public school is going to have just sexually deviant materials under the name of diversity and inclusion. So if you're going to put that kind of stuff on the printed page, why not defeat an idea you disagree with with a better idea? And that's exactly what the Bombergers have done. So in 2003, they wrote, She is she which is an age-appropriate book that celebrates undeniable, biological, beautiful her. And then they said, well, we can't stop there. So now we're going to put out a new book that's pro-life, pro-adoption, and pro-science called He is He, which is a binary, gender-affirming book that celebrates what it means to be a boy and a man. So Ryan and Bethany join us now to talk about these two great books, She is She and He is He. And by the way, they're the parents of a boatload of kids, so these are conversations I'm guessing start around their kitchen table. The warmest of welcomes to both of you. Let me start first with She is She. How received, how well-received was that book initially? Hey, Janet, we're so glad to be here. And you know, it's amazing how well-received it was. I I really believe that if we had written the book five or six years ago, people would have just pushed it to the back of the, you know, the bookshelf and said, oh, that's nice. But here we are in the middle of a culture where simple truths are being questioned. And we're having to write books that really celebrate what was once a simple truth that was not even being questioned. So we're grateful. We have gotten, we actually have a map where we started putting little uh, stick pins into all the places where people have (laughs) ordered these books overseas. So it's been, it's, it's reached, you know, many, many folks here and abroad because people are so excited to see something that resonates with their soul. The truth that there is an undeniable, biological, beautiful difference between guys and girls. Mm, Wow. So, Ryan, with he is he, uh, as complex as she as she is in addressing a cultural issue, he is he is even more complex because we don't know what it means to be a man. I understand people who want to sit in the Supreme Court can't answer the question, what is a woman? (laughs) But it's more problematic for a man because now every time we talk about males, the word toxic precedes it. So how do we raise our sons to be godly men without fearing that somehow they're going to grow up to be toxic? Right. Well, we can't feed them the the cesspool that has become our our cultural rhetoric. Um, so many of these narratives. I mean, like you said, anytime they talk about masculinity, it's toxic. It's not just toxic mas- masculinity. They just think being masculine is toxic. So we offer, you know, a narrative that counters that that shows how men can lovingly protect and provide, especially fathers, and they do all the time. And so. You know, with she and she, he is he. She she actually came out in 2022. He is he. We just released at the end of 2023 for Christmas, and because you know, guys sometimes take a little longer than girls to get around to things. So, <laughs> but we we wanted to counter these narratives and to show the beauty of womanhood with she is she. Show the beauty of of manhood with he is he. And the reason why it resonates is because people are so afraid to actually engage on these issues. And they almost feel this huge relief. Wait, wait a minute. That's exactly what I think. But exactly. somehow 
just didn't know exactly how to say it. So children's lit is a powerful way to actually convey these basic biblical and scientific truths. Wow. Bethany, did you use your kids as a focus group? And if the answer is yes, what was their response? <laughs> well, you know, I taught for many years in, in public and private schools, in elementary school, middle school. And um, then since I've homeschooled my kids for a lot of years, um, I've had a lot of experience talking to them about a lot of different things and they find it laughable. In fact, my boys are really funny. They are just, all of the kids are funny when they get together. And I love listening to them joke about things that they're seeing because they're, they're trying to process what they're seeing in culture, what they're hearing, and they're weighing all that information with the standard of the Bible, which we've prayerfully poured into them since before day one, mm. you know, even in utero, reading the scriptures and just declaring that they belonged to the Lord. So it has been interesting to watch as they have worked through what externally they're hearing, but what internally they know in their heart. I would say they fully endorse the books, by the way. Plus, they're actually um, illustrated in the books. So that was a very fun part of it because we love Ed Kaler, who's Ed Kaler, our illustrator, is just catches the vision of of what we want and what we were asking for. And we gave him different inspiration pictures. And so some of them, yes, are our children at different uh, different events over the years. And so it's really fun for them to see, hey, this is uh, this was inspired by me. So. We pray that all kids look and find reflections of themselves and find inspiration in the books and the illustrations. What's the target age? I think that we could t say pretty straightforward pre-K through probably second or third grade. Mm -hmm. But look at us old people, I won't give you my age, but here we are talking about a book, a children's book. And as a teacher and as a person who knows that literature is powerful, it's sometimes just as powerful for the folks reading it as it is for those that are listening to it. And so although it's categorically in a pre-K to second or third grade spot, it really is something that we're seeing is influencing folks of all ages. Yeah. Amen. And I'm going to pause here and say, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, mom and dad, without excuse, if you have children in that window, definitely you need this as a resource in your legacy library. Grandma and grandpa, God's called you to build character into the lives of your grandchildren. Get a copy. And then when they come over and visit, you've got a copy of the book to read to them. By the way, you did this in She is She, and I'm so glad to see that it was there and He is He. After you've told the story with these fabulous illustrations, you go, but there's more. And you boldly end each of the books by saying, what does the Bible say? Ryan, talk to me about this. And word, because this is the lesson right here. This isn't the Bomberger's opinion. This is what God has said. Yeah, exactly. And this is why this is, you know, even more important than what precedes it. But what we need to do is establish a foundation, a biblical foundation for what is true. And when we talk about Genesis 127, for instance, that God created us male and female, that is the starting point. But then there are other things that reinforce, especially when we're dealing with a lot of this, this confusion as Christians, what should our response be? Should be compassion, should be love. So we have some of those verses in there because there are going to people be people who disagree with us. But the whole point is that there is brokenness. And what do you do with broken people? You love them. You don't love the brokenness, but you love them through that so they can experience breakthrough. So that's why these verses aren't just great for little children. They're mm -hmm. great for teenagers. They're great for adults. And they're, they're great reminders even for adults who may have forgotten. Oh, my word. Okay. Yeah. There are some basics that I have even forgotten. Exactly. And so 
that in the section, you know, what does science say perhaps could bring up some things that adults don't even realize. And these are just reinforcing because it's a beautiful thing that science constantly reinforces scripture. Yeah, isn't that exactly? There's no conflict there, despite the uh, reports to the opposite of that. By the way, you've got a combination offer right now, and I've got a link on my website for that, so that if you did not get She Is She when it was first released, now you've got an opportunity to get both of the books, He Is He and She Is She, and I would strongly recommend that you get both of them. So is what does the Bible say, then what does science say in the back of each one of these books, which is important? Ryan, you have said, and I'm quoting you, Kids should never be the testing ground for anyone's emotional or sexual affirmation. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, we're seeing this. I mean, you'd watch, well, maybe you shouldn't, but if you're on any of the social media platforms like TikTok or or X, you'll see so many teachers just, you know, patting themselves on the back for, you know, telling their second grade students that they are two-spirited or that they're trans (laughs) or that they're whatever. Like that, how about teach them two plus two? But instead, they just feel like, and these are people who have some deep emotional, psychological issues that they have to get that affirmation from a group of young students who don't even understand the dynamics of what these teachers are talking about. And it's so destructive. Now, again, I have compassion for these people that are going through this kind of brokenness. But unfortunately, their confusion becomes children's chaos. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing that play out. And that's why I'm saying that children should not be the testing ground for someone's sexual affirmation. And so, you know, we're here in Loudoun County, by the way. People mm-hmm. may have heard of Loudoun County, Virginia. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so our our school system here is, and I can't use any other word other than hellbent, because that's the direction they're taking so many of their students on, on indoctrinating them with this gender confusion. And our hearts are really to rescue the young children and to give tools to parents to Amen. be able to deal with this confusion. So again, this is a must in your family library. Ryan and Bethany Bomberger are not just the co-founders of the Radiance Foundation, but they are the co-authors of several books. The two together we're talking about today, He Is He and She Is She. These are books about identity from a biblical perspective and a scientific perspective and a necessary resource in a world gone crazy. More with Ryan and Bethany right after this. visiting with Ryan and Bethany Bomberger, co-founders of the Radiance Foundation and particularly germane to our conversation today, the co-authors of She Is She and He Is He, two wonderful books that are about identity. And you know, when you think about it, this identity issue is huge. It's not only a cultural phenomenon right now, but it's a major issue for people who follow Jesus. The Bible talks about our identity all the time. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. Paul, giving that address in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. That's the New Testament way in the book of Acts of defining the word identity, have our being. At both the end of She is She and He is He, Ryan and Bethany have this quote, and it's so germane to people of all ages. When your identity is rooted in Christ, it won't be uprooted by everything else. Oh, that we would get that right, not just in the transgender issue, but in all the things. You're not defined by your marriage, your kids, your job, your paycheck, the home you live in. We are identified in Christ, and that's where we find our true identity. 
Ryan, at the end of He is He, you invite us to meet Henry Bomberger, and this will be of particular interest to my folks listening in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Tell me why you decided to have this book dedicated to Henry Bomberger Jr. Well, you can't have He is He without having fathers. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, the ultimate father, God our father. And I had a, a dad who really had the heart of God in him. And it's the reason why I love being a dad. It's the reason why I love being a husband. And so I thought, how can I write a book about he is he without talking about one of the greatest men I've, not one of the, the greatest man I've ever known on this planet, <laughs> which is my father, uh, Henry Bomberger, who uh, tragically passed away during the height of COVID. But I just thought, you know, we don't get too heavy into it in the book, but we talk about how he impacted my life and the two greatest gifts that he gave me, one being his son and also knowing the Lord Jesus. And so just he was an amazing guy who loved to laugh. And you'll see images of him and me, which is why, you know, we have this book is definitely pro-adoption. You'll see adoption throughout the book. Mm. But it was impossible to create this without just highlighting the beauty of fatherhood. Wow. Well, you can't avoid the fact, <laughs> not only is it pro-adoption, but this is in your DNA. There were 13 children in your household growing up, and 10 of you were adopted. I mean, nobody gave you a lecture on this. This was, you caught this value. You weren't taught this value. Right. It definitely is part of my <laughs> my DNA, you could say. And so with our four kids today, which doesn't feel nearly as big as the 13 <laughs> that I grew up in. But, I love um, Bethany's some, take sometimes, on that. Sometimes, it's, yeah, sometimes it does. Sometimes, sometimes it feels bigger. It does. But, you know, just having that the, and, and just understand growing up in that and seeing the heart of adoption and, and how it is the essence of salvation. To me as a Christian, it's a way that both Bethany and I see um, God the Father, who yeah. invites us into his family through through Jesus Christ. And so I had to feature um, my dad mainly because of just um, just the legacy of, of love and faith that he left behind. Um, and the, yes, he had 13 kids, but they think there are about 36 grandchildren and 15 great grandchildren. And there is such a beautiful legacy in our family, even my nieces wow. and nephews, some of them are adoptive parents. So it just goes on and on. And that's wow. huge thanks to to my mama, Andrea Bomberger, who obviously you can't adopt 13 kids if you're not both on the same page. So. Right, exactly. Did your dad like photography? Because there's a fabulous illustration of your dad holding not one, but two cameras. Yes. And I have to correct myself. There weren't 13 kids adopted. 10. I, I know my own family. I really do. But yes, the cameras. My dad was always walking around with cameras. He would have usually two, sometimes even three cameras just so he could capture that moment. Um too bad he didn't have an iPhone back then, but he loved just capturing the beauty of what most people would think was just a mundane thing, an ordinary moment. And so he loved capturing life through the lens of a camera. And that's the reason why our family had been able to enjoy so many photos and slides for years and years, because my dad was always taking pictures of what was going on and just yeah. capturing our lives. And precious memories. You know, Bethany, we were talking about he is he and she is she. And of course, the first thing that comes to mind is this transgender transgender issue. But really, it's about identity. And so mm. when we talk about adoption, ad adoption's about identity. Mm -hmm. Who am I? Mm -hmm. Whose am I? Talk to me about that, because that's a whole issue of identity as well in the adoption world. Absolutely. And it's interesting because when we when we try to understand our own identities, 
without starting with Christ, we're always going to meet a dead end. And so as I've been raising kids that have different hair textures, different beautiful (laughs) hues of their skin, right? Have different stories. We have both adopted and biological children. We've come to this, you know, we have to talk about the root of who I am because that then leads into what they think about themselves, what they think about the world, which then leads into their behaviors and their attitudes. And so we always have to go back to, like you were speaking about, the I am the I am, you know, I love that verse. I used to be confused by it. I am that I am, but I understand now that God was never confused about who he was. Mm. And when we understand who he is, when we understand that he placed humanity in us, then we can understand that we were created in his image and that's our starting and our finishing spot. Wow. Well, I started our conversation by saying that I love you both, and I think our friends listening all across the country understand why. I love your love for the Lord, your love for each other, your love for children, both born and unborn, your love for adoption, and your love for the culture writ large, because it's love that motivates somebody to write a book like She is She and He is He. And you said this earlier, and I want to underscore it. This is a hard topic in and outside the church. The church shouldn't be reticent about this because we should be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word and everything that's in it. But sometimes we flounder in the cultural tsunami because we don't know what kind of a resource we can put before our children. You stepped up and you stepped in and you provided us with these two resources that, as you said so well, even if the target age is pre-K to two, it's a whole lot bigger than that. It's the sort of thing where you could start a conversation around your kitchen table as a family. Where do we find our identity? Is it what we do or who we are or in whom we put our trust? If they get this right, as you say so powerfully with eloquence at the end of the book, When our identity is rooted in Christ, it won't be uprooted by everything else. If our kids got that when they were little, think of the struggles they wouldn't go through when they were grown-ups. Thank you so much for who you are and what you do. It's profoundly important. I've got a link to the book combo. Check it out, and then please put it in your family library. It's a must. We'll see you next time, friends. 